suddenly they really lost control of their appetite and they started eating more and more and they got very fat and uh, they developed uh, insulin resistance and they developed all these features, the switch. So we realized that fructose was somehow doing this. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health. And along the way, we have conversations with thought leaders about research-backed information so you can take your health into your own hands. This is a whole new level. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Casey Means, and I am so excited to introduce Dr. Richard Johnson to the podcast today. Dr. Richard Johnson was formerly the chief of the renal division and hypertension at the University of Colorado for nine years. He's a physician that is trained in internal medicine, infectious disease, and nephrology. Along with having an active clinical practice, he is a widely cited NIH-funded scientist who has lectured in over 40 countries and has authored three books, The Sugar Fix, the fat switch, nature wants us to be fat. Dr. Johnson has a special interest in the potential role of sugar and especially fructose and its byproduct uric acid in driving metabolic and kidney disorders. Today, we are going to dig into his book about what really drives the development of fat storage, which is relevant to the vast majority of people living in the Western world, given our monumental rates of overweight and obesity, which are now topping 72% of adults. Welcome to A Whole New Level, Dr. Johnson. Thank you, Casey. It's really a delight being here. So you have an incredible professional background. How did your path unfold from leading you from being a kidney doctor to really this strong interest in the underpinnings of metabolic disease and obesity? Well, it's a great question because uh, kidney disease seems to be quite a, a long distance from obesity and metabolic syndrome. So I understand where you're coming from. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be an anthropologist, actually, or may, even like an archaeologist. But my father was in medicine and got me excited about academic medicine. And I ended up going to medical school, getting my MD and, um, and joining a faculty where I really enjoyed patient care. And I still do. But I really liked research, and I found early on that, um, you know, it was great studying kidney disease, and I was doing all these uh, studies that were translational. Um, but uh, at some point, I realized I wanted to shift to high blood pressure, which is related to the kidney. And then that took me to the metabolic syndrome <laughs> and, and obesity. And, uh, and during that process, I started studying how various food items like sugar and salt could be involved in this process and also a substance called uric acid. And, uh, you know, my research started, really took me out of the kidney. And, and then uh, I also, I started uh, doing not just classic lab research, but studies in nature, studies in animals in the wild. I did some uh, evolutionary biology work uh, and I got interested in, in pretty much multiple uh, areas, multiple ways to try to tackle this problem of what's causing obesity. And in the end, we, we more or less discovered that there's a switch that animals use to become 
uh, fat. And I call it the fat switch or the survival switch. And I think that this is really important in human disease as well. Amazing. And and really the book focuses on this this term, this survival switch that you're introducing and which is really mind-blowing as a unifying theory of why we are getting fat. So I'd love for you to describe to everyone listening, what is the survival switch and why is it important to our obesity and metabolic disease epidemic? Sure. Well, first, we probably should just mention how people currently view obesity. A lot of uh, science views it as uh, being a disease of bad habit, you know, that what's happened is we suddenly became affluent and have food readily available. And so uh, we're we're not controlling our appetite and we're eating more than we should and we're exercising less than we should. And that can lead to obesity. But no one really has talked about a biologic switch that when it turns on makes you want to gain weight. But um, our work really definitely shows that there is a switch and that uh, we have turned it on and that this switch uh, it causes us to eat more and to exercise less and to uh, actually put on fat. And it's uh, used in the wild as a survival mechanism for, for many animals. Uh, and so it's, it, it actually exists. What is so neat about the book is that the beginning really talks about how this survival switch is used in nature and many different animal examples. And so I think some of those, especially the examples around hibernating animals, are are a really helpful way for people to understand like why this is advantageous for some animals. And when resources are scarce and maybe only present at certain parts of the year, um, but in our in our culture of abundant access to food, we can sometimes hijack these pathways that are advantageous in nature. So could you describe a little bit about what's going on in the animal world and maybe historically for the the human uh, world and how things are different now? Sure. So normally animals regulate their weight very tightly and they, they like to have a little bit of excess fat, but they really try to keep it at the same weight. In fact, there were studies long time ago, like if you took animals or like laboratory rats and you uh, fasted them and then you stopped the fast, they would go right back to the weight they should be. And the same thing is if you force fed an animal to gain weight, when you stopped it, they would they would go back to their normal weight. Uh, and this, this was with kind of like standard chow and stuff. So animals do tend to regulate their weight. But... Um, a great exception are animals like hibernating animals. And what happens is they, they maintain a completely normal weight during the summer. And then suddenly they turn on in the fall, they suddenly start eating more. And they, they will eat not just a little more, they'll eat like twice or, uh, or more what they normally eat. And they become hungry and they're foraging for food and they, they get all this, uh, they eat all this food and they put on a lot of fat. And then once they have enough fat, um, they will, uh, and, it, and it, as the fall progresses to early winter, they will actually hibernate where they will suddenly stop eating. They'll drop their body temperatures and they will burn their fat during the winter while, you know, while they're in their den and so forth. And, uh, and then in the spring, they wake up and they're now they're back to their normal weight 
or even possibly a little bit below their weight, but they rapidly get back to the regular weight and they repeat the cycle where suddenly in the fall, they trigger uh, this, this switch and they suddenly start eating lots of food and get quite fat. It's not just hibernating animals, actually. I mean, there's birds that go in long distance migration. They do the same thing. And there's there's many examples in the animal kingdom where this happens. There's even a primate, a lemur, certain, the dwarf-tailed, the fat dwarf-tailed, the, the, the dwarf fat-tailed lemur. <laughs> wait, wait. It's Say that five times fast. <laughs> dwarf lemur. But anyway, there is a lemur that during the uh, hot, dry season, uh, they will uh, basically hibernate during the summer. They, it's called the estivate. Uh, it's got a different name, but they do the same thing. They they build up all this fat in their tail, and then uh, then they live off the fat while they're um, in their uh, summer hibernation. So the question, you know, is what turns on that switch, and and also um, is it more than just uh, just accumulating fat? And so uh, one of the things we were very interested in was was trying to better understand uh, what this the nature of this switch. If you've heard me talk on other podcasts before, you know that I believe that tracking your glucose and optimizing your metabolic health is really the ultimate life hack. We know that cravings, mood instability, and energy levels, and weight are all tied to our blood sugar levels. And of course, all the downstream chronic diseases that are related to blood sugar are things that we can really greatly improve our chances of avoiding if we keep our blood sugar in a healthy and stable level throughout our lifetime. So I've been using CGM now on and off for the past four years since we started Levels, and I have learned so much about my diet and my health. I've learned the simple swaps that keep my blood sugar stable, like flax crackers instead of wheat-based crackers. I've learned which fruits work best for my blood sugar. Like I do really well with pears and apples and oranges and berries, but grapes seem to spike my blood sugar off the chart. I'm also a notorious night owl, and I've really learned with using Levels, if I get to bed at a reasonable hour and get good quality sleep, my blood sugar levels are so much better. And that has been so motivating for me on my health journey. It's also been helpful for me in terms of keeping my weight at a stable level much more effortlessly than it has been in the past. So you can sign up for levels at levels.link slash podcast. Now let's get back to this episode. The way I'm hearing it and the way I understand it from the book is that it is a survival mechanism because in the winter, we don't have... I'm saying we as if we're like the hibernating bear here, but we might not have access to these abundant calories. It's harder to find and forage food or maybe find animals. And so in the fall, when there's all this ripe fruit around, the animals, something biologic happens in them where they actually want to eat more of it and the body knows to store it as fat so that for survival um, purposes, they can make it through the winter. And this is, of course, not the world we're living in anymore, where now we have a bun- we have access to ripe fruit and fructose yeah. and other things all the time. So is that sort of getting at why we are essentially, you know, getting fat because we are activating this survival switch really all the time? Right. And, you know, you're exactly right. 
And one of the things that we we were learned when we started studying this was that um, these hibernating animals are are not just storing fat, uh, in, you know, in their fat tissues, but they're but they're putting fat in their liver. They're getting fatty liver. Uh, they're getting increased fats in their blood, triglycerides and uh, cholesterol, but especially triglycerides. We know that uh, they become insulin resistant as well. And what that, you might say, well, why is insulin resistance um, involved in survival? But uh, what happens is that when you become resistant to insulin, the insulin is not very effective at helping muscle take up glucose. And glucose is our, the main sugar in our blood, and it's used, as you know, uh, as a primary fuel. And the muscles love to use glucose. And when you become insulin resistant, both the liver and the muscle becomes resistant to the effects of uh, insulin. And, and so there's less glucose taken up. And so glucose goes up in the blood. Now, the reason that's a survival benefit is that um, the animal's thinking there's not much food around. And so by making, uh, by reducing the amount of glucose to the muscle and, uh, and letting it go up in the blood, it helps allow enough glucose to be available for the brain. And when you're starving, you need to have a functioning brain because you have to go out there and find food and, and be able to, uh, to get back to your den safely. And, and so you have to be alert and you have to be thinking. And so preserving the energy for the brain is really helpful. The other thing it do, they do is um, they drop their metabolism but, but it's the resting energy metabolism. So while they're resting, they're burning less energy. But, but when they're actually foraging, they're able to use energy pretty, pretty well. So uh, this conserves the energy. So when they need it, which is to look for food, and when they're resting, they, they kind of uh, drop their metabolism. So all these are features that we, we know. That we call this the metabolic syndrome. And everybody thinks the metabolic syndrome is, um, you know, pathologic. It is sort of pathologic for us. We don't want it because it's a major predictor for the development of hypertension and diabetes. And obviously, we don't want it. But it's in, the, in nature, it's not a pathophysiologic problem. It's not a disease. It's a survival tool. And having metabolic syndrome really helps these animals store fat and store uh, the energy they need so that they can survive the winter. Another thing that we, we learned from this is that um, the fat they store isn't just a source of calories. You know, So when they're fasting or when they're um, hibernating, they're burning the fat to produce calories that helps keep them going keep them alive through the winter but the uh when they burn the fat they also produce water but this is sort of uh interesting because um normally we you know fat doesn't really contain water but when you burn fat you make water and so it's another source of water and it turns out that a lot of animals uh have fat so that they can provide a source of water like the whale the whale doesn't drink seawater and so where does it get its fresh water? It gets it from the food it eats, but it also gets it from the fat that it makes. So when it makes the fat and the fat breaks down, it gets water that it needs. It's same thing with desert animals like uh, the camel and so forth. Mm 
So fat turns out to be a survival tool. It was a good thing for animals in the wild, especially when they're in situations where food and water are not easily accessible. And that's particularly like when winter's coming or when you have to go on a long distance flight and things like that. And they seem to trigger this and the switch gets triggered. And then that turns on this whole system to get the metabolic syndrome. And um, as well as other features, uh, it turns out the metabolic syndrome only partially explains all the survival all the survival responses. So there's also a foraging response. And uh, when and these animals will start foraging where they will start looking, uh, they'll, they'll, they have to go into areas where they've not been before. So the, there's a little bit of risk taking and they can't spend a lot of time in any one place because they have to find food and get it back. So they have to, they're on the move. They have to be active and, and, and they can't deliberate on things. They have to make quick decisions. So their attention span has to be short. And, uh, and with that, they, th- that helps them uh, with the foraging. So it's an actual behavioral response that these animals do. And that's part of this survival response, foraging. Um, and there are other, other responses too, that the low-grade inflammation occurs when that helps them ward off infections and so forth. And there's also even some evidence that they uh, reduce their oxygen needs. And there's a, there's a little animal called the naked mole rat that will burrow deep into the ground. And when it gets in that low oxygen state, it starts to um, activate the switch and that allows it to reduce its oxygen need, needs. So uh, this switch is a very powerful mechanism of survival. But obviously, if it's uh, activated chronically and you keep storing fat and you become progressively more and more insulin resistant, then it it's no longer something that helps you survive. It's, it creates a, all these diseases many of which uh, are afflicting our society, like obesity and diabetes, and high blood pressure, and fatty liver. All these come directly out of activation of this pathway. Mm. When the switch is activated, we are biologically, cellularly more prone to storing fat. There's really a molecular different pathway that's happening, which is fascinating. And I think a lot of our listeners, they love the science, they love the mechanism. And so I'd love to talk about what is that pathway in the cells that is shifting to make it such that we are actually shifting towards more fat storage. Just going into maybe a little bit about what are what are the triggers environmentally that lead to the switch, particularly something like fructose, and then what are the downstream sort of How parts of that fructose process that actually lead to this this biologic change. I also want to touch on at some point that you talked about more the psychological component. We're hungrier. We are searching for food more, which is a whole nother set of downstream ramifications. But maybe we can start with just the cellular fat storage um, pathway. Yeah, so, so when we realized that there was a switch and that it involved not just storing fat, but becoming insulin resistant, and that it involved even more than the metabolic syndrome. The question was, what is the trigger? What triggers the switch? And, uh, you know, we did note um, early on that many of these animals that hibernate um, change their diet. And uh, in the fall, as you mentioned earlier, um, you start getting ripe fruits. And and, um, and bears, will, for example, will eat 
thousands of grapes at a time. Um, and, and, and they do this in the fall and, and, um, and they, it's associated with staying hungry and, and becoming, uh, resistant to a hormone called leptin, which normally controls satiety. So when you become resistant to leptin, um, when you eat, you don't feel full. So you keep eating. And, um, and so these animals develop leptin resistance and they develop, um, uh, hunger and, and it seems to be associated with eating, uh, ripe fruit. And also we notice this with, uh, uh like birds will, sh- uh, there's studies that show that when they switch to a fruit based diet in the fall, that that's uh, seems to be associated with the triggering of the switch. So we, we, uh, became interested in, in fruit and fruit contains a sugar called fructose. And it's uh, also known as fruit sugar. And fructose is also present in table sugar. And table sugar is, is actually sucrose or a disaccharide that consists of one fructose molecule and one glucose molecule bound together. And so when you eat sugar or high fructose corn syrup, uh, you're actually getting a fair amount of fructose. And uh, we began by doing experiments where we gave sugar to animals. This was 15 years ago. And we found that they rapidly, you know, developed this, um, this switch got turned on and suddenly after it took like about a month to to make them leptin resistant. So initially when they were eating sugar, they were just eating less of other foods. But after about two to four weeks, suddenly they really lost control of their appetite and they started eating more and more. And they got very fat and uh, they developed uh, insulin resistance and they developed uh, all these features of the switch. You know, so we, we realized that fructose was somehow doing this. And then the, the natural question that came out of this was, was this, were they simply getting fat because they were eating too many calories? Or were, could you get fat even if just by eating the sugar without eating more calories? Because when you were eating the sugar and the fructose, it was making you hungry, so you ate more. So we decided to do studies where we, we controlled for how much the animals ate. So, so it's called pair feeding, but basically what it is, is you feed one animal, you feed a group of animals uh, sugar, right? Or starch, for example. And then uh, the next day you go and you, you record how much each animal ate. And the animal that eats the least, that's what all the other animals have to eat because you want everyone to eat the same amount. So now they're all eating the same as the, as the, the, the guy that eats the least. And then after several months, you can, you can determine because they're all eating all their food and they're all eating exactly the same amount of food. And then you could see um, if sugar did something more than just, uh, I mean, was it just from eating too much food that they were getting fat or not? And what we found was pretty profound. When you fed animals fructose, even if you controlled for their caloric intake, they developed most features of the metabolic syndrome. They would get fatty liver. They would get insulin resistance. They would get high triglycerides in their blood. They would get high blood pressure. They would get all these uh, characteristics of metabolic syndrome, even if they weren't eating extra calories. But interestingly, weight gain was linked a lot with eating more. So um, they would tend to increase their weight because their metabolism was slower. And so 
Over time, I'm sure there would be a difference in weight if you went out months and months, but like in a short-term study, like uh, two months or three months or even four months, you couldn't really see that great a change in weight. So it looks, to me, it looks like uh, the weight gain is driven more by uh, increased food intake that's biologically driven, but the rest of the metabolic syndrome occurs from the sugar independent of calories. So then the question was, how does, why, how does fructose work? And as you say, what are the cellular mechanisms? And um, fructose and glucose look pretty similar. They're like six carbon, you know, carbohydrates. They're simple sugars. Uh, they seem to go through pretty similar uh, metabolic pathways, but there is a trick. <laughs> and the trick is that the, um, fructose is different from glucose. And when it's metabolized, um, the very first enzyme that works on fructose uh, is called fructokinase, or sometimes I call it KHK because its nickname is ketohexokinase. <laughs> anyway, this enzyme uh, drops the energy in the cell. Now, normally when you eat food or any nutrient, you make energy, right? You make energy. That's why we're eating the food. But when you eat fructose, the energy level actually falls in the cell, not goes up. And that's because of this unique enzyme that uses energy to, to burn or to metabolize the fructose. And so it drops uh, ATP, which is the energy currency in our cells, and it drops the energy in the cell. And then there's a series of enzymatic reactions. And I, it's all biochemistry. I don't know if you want me to go into it. Uh, I'm happy to, but anyway, it's a series of biochemical reactions in which the ATP that is consumed is further broken down and ends up as uric acid and the uric acid accumulates in the cell. And when you eat glucose or most, you know, you don't generate this uric acid and you don't have this energy depletion. But when you eat fructose, there's this drop in energy and the formation of uric acid. And then the uric acid actually works on the mitochondria, the, where we make most of our energy, and slows down the mitochondria further so that they're making less energy. It kind of initiates uh, glycolysis, which is another form of you know, uh, a type of energy that can be made independent of oxygen. It doesn't need oxygen, whereas the mitochondria needs oxygen. And so um, what happens is the energy level falls in the cell and stays low for several hours. And uh, when that happens, the it, it's like a mayday signal. So, you know, normally an animal would, if it had low energy in itself, it didn't have enough calories to make ATP, and its levels fell, that would be like an alarm and you would want to go out and get food immediately. So if you're a starving animal and your uh, ATP levels fall, you're gonna go foraging for food and you're gonna try to get food to survive. But in this case, we're, we're faking the system, we're, we're tricking the host, we're creating a, a sensation uh, that we have a low energy, even though you have all this fat stored that can provide energy. So it tricks the body into thinking that it's starving. And when that happens, it activates foraging, it activates hunger, it activates thirst, it activates all these things. Your blood pressure goes up, 
You get fatty liver, to, you start storing fat as a survival mechanism. You become insulin resistant to protect the brain. This is all supposed to be a good thing, right? And animals use this fructose as that system. That's their main way to activate the system. And it turns out that when you eat glucose, it's like glucose is like a good fuel that creates satiety, makes you feel full. It uh, keeps the energy levels high. And fructose is the counter molecule. It's there to actually make you eat more and to activate this switch. So they really have different functions, major different biologic functions. Oh my gosh. It's just, <laughs> it's just mind blowing. Like, I feel like that was a tour de force over really a root cause of so much of the disease we're seeing in the country right now. Because here, you know, you, you think about a person the average person in America going to the movie theater or something, they get a soda, they get candy. It's filled with fructose. And really what is happening there as they're downing that liquid fructose, the candy, it is molecular hijacking of a system in our body that in these big doses is just driving us to seek more food, to actually lower the energy in our cells, therefore driving us into a cellular panic mode to right. acquire more and generating this byproduct, uric acid, which is causing mitochondrial dysfunction, causing right. dysfunction of the energy makers of our cells, therefore shunting us towards storing energy as fat and driving us to, of course, be craving more and more and more. I mean, it's it's amazing. This molecule, actually, it's almost like should be revered how fascinating and smart biology is Ugh. to create something like this, that in a situation like autumn, where there's ripe fruit everywhere, the animal, once they get a taste of it, and after a couple weeks of taste, they become leptin resistant, they become desiring of this food, and they want to eat more so that they can then get through winter. I mean, it's just mind blowing. <laughs> it really is. I love your phrase molecular hijacking because it's exactly what's happening. And it's also true how wise nature is. I mean, nature, I mean, even if you think about it, um, nature has evolved in a system where uh, the animals are helping the plants and the plants are helping the animals. So when early immature fruit has very low sugar in it, and very high vitamin C. And vitamin C actually counters some of the effects of sugar. And so animals don't like to eat the fruit early because there's not much fructose in it. <clears throat> but as the fruit ripens, then the fructose content goes up and the vitamin C content drops so that the tree has it set so that when the fruit ripens and falls off the tree, that it is ripe, it's high in fructose, it's low in vitamin C, it's going to help the animal get fat which nature would like because then the animal will eat it because it's trying to make it through the winter and then it will disperse the seeds which are now mature so it's all working out as a as a system for that helps the trees as well as helps the animals yeah it's a, it's an incredible system yeah and and just to to quickly touch on that point you made about vitamin C, because this gets talked about in the book a bit. From my understanding, part of that mechanism is that vitamin C can act as an antioxidant and, and sort of mitigate some of the mitochondrial oxidative stress that's happening from uric acid. I think it's just an interesting way of highlighting how so much of this is centered ultimately around the mitochondria. And when the mitochondria is working 
properly, we can generate ATP, we can generate that cellular energy, we can process it, we don't have to shunt towards, you know, fat storage. Um, And antioxidants uh, can help support that by minimizing this overload of oxidative stress that can come from many different parts of our diet and lifestyle. But of course, uric acid being a big one in this story. And then there's the opposite of this, which is where we have mitochondrial dysfunction, which we, we generally think of as a bad thing because it can, you know, lead to aging and, you know, cellular damage and whatnot. But in this unique situation, it can be temporarily beneficial by helping the animals store, store more fat. But the vitamin C, if you want to just touch on maybe briefly some of that data about how that can be helpful for us. So it it turns out that vitamin C is an antioxidant that works on the mitochondria and reduces oxidative stress in the mitochondria. And it's true that the way the fructose and uric acid are working, one of the ways is it's causing oxidative stress in the mitochondria, which over time can destroy mitochondria, but acutely uh, has effects that lead to insulin resistance and fat storage. And also it depresses mitochondrial function and allows glycolysis to take over, which is a protective system as well because it reduces the oxygen needs of the animal. As we mentioned with the naked mole rat that can live much longer in the burrow than a rat because it produces, it actually produces fructose in in its body that um, allows it to to survive. Um, And so with the vitamin C story, it turns out that we realized that uh, vitamin C is is a vitamin for us because we lost our ability to make vitamin C and and uh, way back when. So I became interested in why would we lose an antioxidant? I mean, antioxidants should be beneficial. We know it's beneficial. So why why would we lose the ability to make an antioxidant? And and so we we you know it's a long story. I do talk about in the book. Uh, and but but very briefly, it turns out that that mutation occurred shortly after the uh, dinosaur extinction and this big asteroid hitting the earth. And it was a time of where there was a lot of extinction and uh, our ancestors, which were just little, little primates at the time, <laughs> they were, they were barely surviving. And, uh, and we figured out that the vitamin C mutation occurred at that time and that it might've helped them survive with uh, dwindling fruit supplies. And the way we showed that was we did an experiment where we uh, used mice that were vitamin C deficient and we gave them vitamin C, uh, either a low dose or a high dose. So the low dose is sort of the the kind of vitamin C blood levels that you see in people who are overweight. And the high levels of vitamin C that we gave was to give a kind of a healthy vitamin C level in the blood. And then we fed them uh, high fructose corn syrup uh, where they got to drink it uh, like like a soda drink. And they could drink it all the time. And after several months, um, they both both groups drank the same amount of sugar, but the group that got the high doses of vitamin C were protected. Um, they got much less obesity. So we were able to show that vitamin C really is um, a protector of from obesity. But also, we found that um, the vitamin C mutation probably occurred to aid survival. Uh, and unfortunately, it increases our risk for obesity today. And there's also a, a mutation in uric acid metabolism that also was a survival mechanism millions of years ago, and we got this mutation. And so we are 
particularly susceptible to sugar. So um, if you give a, a mouse or rat uh, sugar, you have to give them fairly large doses to get them to become obese. But uh, in humans, you can do it very uh, with much lower doses because we're more sensitive to sugar. Mm. So basically, we lost that ability to break down the uric acid. And so it's accumulating more in our cells and pushing us more towards this mitochondrial dysfunction that ultimately leads to the fat storage. And so that could have actually been advantageous if we uh, we needed to store more fat, i.e. in a time like a famine or something like that, similar with vitamin C, losing the ability to make it has downstream effects on the mitochondria. Both essentially allow us to be in this state that stores more fat. Is that sort of the way yeah, to look at means, it? Yeah. So when you eat fructose, you make the uric acid and the uric acid plays a role in this whole process by causing oxidative stress of the mitochondria. And normally when you eat fructose, you make a certain amount of uric acid. And most animals only make a small amount of uric acid, like when they eat sugar. But we, uh, but normally when you make the uric acid, it's degraded by this enzyme uricase. And we had a mutation in the uricase so that when we eat sugar, we get a much mm. stronger uric acid response. And, you know, I worked with this... Uh, wonderful scientist, Eric Gosher, who actually resurrected the extinct uricase that uh, primates <laughs> used to have, but we, we lost it. And uh, we were able to show that when we put that uricase into liver cells, for example, that it would blunt the amount of fat produced from fructose. And so when we had the mutation and we lost uricase, we, could, we doubled our ability to make fat hmm. from, from the same amount of fruit. So um, there's a great way to survive. And, and the uricase mutation also occurred during the period of, in, in time when uh, we almost went extinct. So hmm. it turns out that, um, you know, we, we survived a couple of times because of this survival switch. And, uh, and what happened is, you know, we had these mutations that helped keep us uh, from dying of starvation. But it didn't, they weren't by themselves enough to make us fat. Mm. Uh, they were really to protect us from dying when food was, was really sparse. But, um, but then what happened, of course, is we had that advent of sugar where suddenly sugar intake dramatically increased. And as you probably know, in uh, 1800, there the average intake of sugar was like 18 pounds of sugar a year. Uh, in 1700, it was four pounds a year. I mean, people were, sugar really wasn't around back then, except for the wealthy. And the wealthy were the ones that were getting these. <laughs> and then uh, around 1900, uh, sugar intake starts going up very significantly. And we're seeing the emergence of obesity and diabetes and uh, hypertension and all these diseases link with the rise in sugar intake. And so, uh, uh, it looks like sugar is the major player driving the switch, but we did have another <laughs> another discovery, uh, Casey. That, uh, <laughs> you know, was was really disappointing, and that was that there were there are other foods that can activate the switch, and and sugar, while it's the main one, fructose is the main one. It turns out that the body can make fructose, and it does, and it can make it in uh, from certain foods. 
but it can also just make it when you're in trouble, when you're under great stress, you can actually make some fructose. And But the number one uh, way to increase fructose production is probably um, by eating uh, high glycemic carbs. And what you, your company does, which is to measure the glucose levels in the blood, because when you eat uh, foods that raise glucose in the blood, that triggers the production of fructose in the body. So you don't have to eat sugar. Uh, to make you to get into trouble from sugar, you just have to high glycemic carbs like bread and rice and potatoes will actually create regenerate fructose in your body. And we know from our animals that if we block the metabolism of fructose, we can feed them uh, rice and potatoes and they won't develop metabolic syndrome. So, I mean, they, they will gain some weight. And I think insulin is driving some of the weight gain. Uh, but most of it is coming as a result of the fructose. Um, and I've had some nice conversations with Gary Tobbs recently, <laughs> and um, who's a believe, big believer in the insulin pathway. And it is kind of an interesting thing, Casey, that when you become insulin resistant, the fat cells um, may actually still be sensitive to some of the insulin. So the insulin might be working to increase fat accumulation in the peripheral fat. But that insulin resistance is developing because of the fructose that is made in your body when you eat high glycemic carbs. And this uh, continuous glucose monitor that you have actually is very helpful because not only does it help tell you, you know, how much insulin you're going to stimulate, but it also tells you how much fructose you're going to make. Well, I think this is, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is a topic that I want to dig into a little bit more because I think this might be the first time anyone listening has ever heard the concept that that one of the ways that glucose makes us fat is not just by glucose stimulating insulin, which can block fat, fat oxidation, but that it is actually glucose converting in the body to fructose that is what is actually generating more of the fat storage. I mean, this is this is probably a bomb drop for a lot of people listening. So I think it'd be great to unpack it more. And I think you, you touched on this elegant uh, study that you did where basically you're feeding these rats or mice high glycemic diets, which we'd expect to make them fat um, due to insulin's effect on fat burning. And yet, if you block fructose metabolism you can actually block part of that fat stimulus from the high glycemic diet. So that is really interesting mechanism. So can you describe a little bit what that pathway is from glucose to fructose and what's happening when we have the glucose spike? Sure. That's ultimately feeding into the survival switch. So there is only one way in humans that you can make fructose, and that's from glucose through an enzyme pathway called the polyol pathway. And it's actually two enzymes uh, that convert glucose uh, to sorbitol and then sorbitol to fructose. And so um, it's triggered by high glucose levels. So when you have high glucose levels, that turns on this enzyme to start making sorbitol from the glucose and then the sorbitol gets converted to fructose. So this, this pathway, the polyol pathway, we've known about it for a long time because uh, people who are diabetic show up evidence for activation of this pathway. Uh, that was sort of the trick when we 
when we discovered this, uh, because we knew that diabetes was associated with uh, activation of the polyol pathway. And when you eat high glycemic carbs, you're, you're also getting transient rises in blood glucose. But even more so in the liver, the glucose levels are very high. And it turns out that where the switch really is working is in the liver. And so what we did is we gave glucose to animals and we found that sure enough, this enzyme got turned on in the liver and it started making fructose. And, um, and, th and that fructose was 100% responsible for the fatty liver, 100% responsible for the insulin resistance and drove a much but not all of the obesity. So then what we did is we, we gave animals high fructose corn syrup, which consists of um, fructose and glucose. And when we gave that combination, again, we found that, um, you know, insulin is stimulated by the glucose, but when we knocked out fructose metabolism, we could really block everything, all the aspects of metabolic syndrome and, and even obesity was, was minimal. Hmm. Uh, and so when you drink a soft drink, and you're getting the glucose, the glucose is responsible for driving some of the obesity, but it's not the way we think about it. It's because the glucose is being converted to fructose. And something you mentioned there that I, I know might spark some people to, to have an, an additional question is you said it's the fructose that's causing the insulin resistance. And Correct. this is different than what a lot of people are, think um, with you know, insulin and this sort of repeated exposure to insulin causing the cell to become, you know, numb to it or, or, you know, chronic overnutrition in general, causing intracellular fat accumulation that leads to insulin resistance. But can you describe in this paradigm, how the fructose is molecularly leading to insulin resistance? You know, that's probably one of the few things we don't know the full pathway, but it does involve the AKT mechanism for sure. A uh, number of groups have, have linked mitochondrial oxidative stress with being critical for the development of insulin resistance. Um, all I can truthfully tell you is that our studies clearly show that fructose drives insulin resistance. It's linked with the uric acid. It's linked with the mitochondrial oxidative stress. And that's pretty much all I can uh, tell you about. But I know that there are many other groups now that are looking at this pathway and uh, there's a Dr. Samir Softik, who uh, actually has identified several good candidate pathways for this. Really interesting, and I can't wait to see how that unfolds. And and I think just generally thinking about the the mitochondrial um, dysfunction as a centralizing heart of this makes makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think people listening might be like, oh my God, I never want to touch fructose again. This is clearly just doing this like molecular hijacking. This is so bad. I can't eat fruit again. So what, which we, we, we know is not totally true. You know, the fruit yeah. epidemiologically, um, is associated with longevity. And as well as molecularly, we know that a lot of aspects of fruit are extremely positive for cellular biology. So how, what framework should people be thinking about actually fructose in their own life through, particularly as it pertains to whole food fructose versus liquid fructose and sort of the, the quantity and speed at which they're consuming it? So it turns out you're totally right. So fruit, natural fruit intake, I mean, fruit, natural fruits are associated with good health, not bad health. And, and, um, 
And so how, how is it that animals in the wild can eat fruit to activate the switch? And we're saying that eating fruit may actually help protect you from the switch. So it seems like uh, it doesn't make sense. But the, what, the way it works is the following. The first thing is, what, you know, when a bear or, or these animals in the wild eat fruit, they just gorge on fruit and they eat as much as they can and as quickly as they can. And they actually uh, can eat enough that it really turns on the switch. When we eat natural fruit, the first thing to know is that like a natural fruit only has like three or four grams, maybe six grams of fructose. Some have higher, but mo many fruits are around five or six grams. And that's a very small amount. And one of the, the work done by Josh Rabinowitz uh, showed that the intestine is sort of a, a, a shield for small doses of fructose. When you eat like three or four grams of fructose, the intestines will actually neutralize it and they will not uh, get, the fructose will not get to the liver. You really have to eat more than like four or five grams to before the fructose gets to the liver. So if you eat a lot of fruit together, you could get a fructose load to the liver. But if you eat just like one or two fruit at a time, uh, the amount of fructose that gets to the liver is, is blocked a little bit by this intestinal shield. Another thing that blocks it is fiber. And the fiber in the fruit slows the absorption. And it turns out that the liver responds to the concentration of fructose, not the amount. So the more you eat, the higher the concentration. So the more you eat, and if you drink a soft drink with 25 grams of fructose, you're going to get a huge load. The concentration is going to be high, and uh, there's no fiber in that soft drink, and you're just going to absorb it. Boom. But if you eat a natural fruit, you've got the fiber that slows the absorption, so the concentration uh, is not going to be as high. And also, there's not as much fructose in a fruit. And then the, the fruits also contain the vitamin C, which we told you can neutralize it. And, the vi and also things like epicatechin and flavanols that actually counter it too. So we actually did a study where we put people on a low fructose diet. And in one group, we supplemented them with natural fruit. And we found that the supplementing with natural fruit was equally effective at lowering weight um, mm. in these people. And in fact, there was even a little bit more weight loss with the natural fruit uh, and that was given along with the, uh, with the low fructose diet. So uh, our low sugar diet, because the natural fruits obviously contain some fructose. So um, the reality, though, is that um, if you drink fruit juice, where you take multiple fruit and you, you blend it and you create a juice, then you can get a large dose of fructose. And it's definitely linked with obesity and uh, in children and the pediatric uh, community uh, recommends, re you know, limiting fruit juice in children. Uh, and likewise, dried fruit, which we love, right? We all, you <laughs> like fruit. we all like dried fruit, you know, the gorp and where you have um, dried fruit, unfortunately, um, is really rich in fructose and has lost a lot of its uh, good nutrients in the process of the drying. Um, and so I don't recommend dried fruit either. So, uh, but basically, uh, I think that if you... Uh, you know, that one or two natural fruits and maybe even three, three, three or even four in a, over a, a day 
are is probably going to work okay. Now you have to be careful, as you know, as you told me. Um, some fruits like bananas can really raise glucose levels significantly, and um, and I have documented that uh, as well. And so I do think we have to be careful with certain fruits that uh, that we don't overdo it and trigger fructose production and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So I think what I'm hearing is you know whole natural fruits avoid the liquid fruit uh, or liquid sugar in any way whether that's juice or sodas or sugar sweetened beverages because it's just going to overload the system and same with dried fruit it's concentrated and so you're getting a higher load um i think one of the the frameworks that i took away from the book was just this idea of it's not you know it's not really the fructose so much that is the problem it's the down it's the byproducts of the fructose you know breaking down and if you are eating just a tiny trickle of fructose you've got all these cells in the liver and elsewhere that can process it and and make that tiny bit of uric acid but the 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 body knows what to do with it it's not overwhelming the mitochondria it's not this onslaught yeah. but when you you can imagine if you then just like slug 28 ounces of fructose in a soda you are just overwhelming the system. You're flooding the cells with this, these byproducts of fructose metabolism. You're overwhelming. It's just a totally different ball game. So we can't just lump all fructose together. And then of course, as you mentioned, certain foods like whole fruits have protective mechanisms to even mitigate some of the downstream stuff like vitamin C mitigating some of that oxidative stress. So it's so contextual. And I think it's really creates a an important point around like we need to understand cellular biology to understand nutrition recommendations. There is not simple rules that we can follow, like, you know, avoid all fructose at all, at all costs. It's it's more nuanced than that. But these series of experiments that you've done are, are, you know, help us actually get to those real truths um, behind a lot of the nutrition ideology. Yeah. The switch really is like a dimmer rather than a on and off. So if you if you take a soft drink and you drink it all at once, you're going to really activate this pathway. The energy level is going to fall very significantly in the liver and trigger this reaction. If you eat just a small amount of fructose, the ATP levels may fall very little, if at all. In fact, I think if you sipped a, a soft drink over a couple hours as opposed to drinking it in five minutes, you would not get so much of an ATP depletion and you, it might just function like a calorie mm. more than um, like a, some kind of activation of the switch. So yeah. you're exactly right that, you know, this is what's come out of our work is it's, it's, and, you know, I think that if you wanted to try to say that sugar was safe, you would pick people who uh, have really good mitochondrial function and you <laughs> give the sugar slowly and you know and and try to not activate the switch and uh if you did it though the way most kids are doing it out there where they drink it really fast then you're gonna see the problem i love it 
here's a so here's like the, the the recommendations for research for the processed food companies. We're like telling you know have them be people who do lots of resistance training, have great mitochondrial function, give the sugar over like very slow time period. <laughs> yeah, make sure they're really hydrated and uh, give them lots of vitamin C. And you know it's like there are ways to show that this is you know not necessarily a big deal, but that is not not the way that we're eating these exactly. things in our real life. We're, we're pairing processed food with sedentary behavior. We have all these other contributors of oxidative stress, like chronic low-grade psychological stress, et cetera. And so um, it just, yeah, but it's interesting to hear how you can, you could kind of game the system with the research <laughs> to show that it's okay. Absolutely. And if, <laughs> once you know the, how this works, honestly, you can read the papers and just go, aha, this is what uh-huh. they did. And you know, I don't know if you want me to go through that, but the, you know, Maybe a different, maybe another, another episode. Another, another <laughs> meeting, but we can go through how how to game the system, which is done a lot. Good. Yeah, I do. I would love to touch on because I know our listeners are going to be interested in this: the concepts of salt and osmolality. A lot of people are not thinking about how salt contributes to obesity, but your book makes a really important um, case for this. And there's, especially right now, there's um, kind of this movement, very pro-salt movement that's happening in the fitness and nutrition space about how important salt is for really cellular functioning. But it is a complex topic. And I think if you could just break down how salt and blood osmolality can lead to the switch and and sort of drive obesity through mechanisms that I think are very not well known. I'd love for you to just describe that sort of picture and maybe comments also on like how people should be thinking about salt in their diet. Well, when we learned that um, animals use fat as a source of water, it became apparent to me that dehydration might be a stimulus to activate the switch. And when you get dehydrated, your osmolarity goes up in your blood. And osmolarity is a fancy term, but what what it means is that the salt concentration in the blood goes up. And that's because you're losing water. So when you get dehydrated, you're losing water from sweating or from exercising or maybe from diarrhea or something. And what happens is when you get dehydrated, the salt concentration in your blood goes up. And that is another trigger of the polyol pathway. So it will lead to fructose production. And we actually found that in animals that if we dehydrate them, they start making fructose. Now, mild dehydration, you know, you uh, animals will be able to get around and, and look for food and water. But if you're severely dehydrated, you're kind of out for it. But the way we c- can create mild dehydration in animals a very easy way is to give salt. And when Mm. you eat salt, um, the concentration of salt goes up in your blood and it mimics like the effect of losing water. And so when you eat salty food and you get thirsty, it's because the osmolarity has gone up in your blood and you uh, that triggers thirst because your salt concentrations are high. And that actually is activating this pathway to make fructose. So we started thinking about this. We thought, well, geez, you know, everybody views salt as uh, as potentially a problem in blood pressure. And certainly I've studied it. And I do believe that salt has a role in blood pressure in certain groups, subgroups, people. And But then when we started looking at it, we found that there are papers that show that people who eat a lot of salt 
tend to become overweight over time. And, and it sort of uh, has not been been uh, viewed very carefully. Uh, and But there are quite a few papers. And there's an investigator, Jody Stuckey, who's done some really beautiful work showing that people who are overweight or obese also tend to be dehydrated and to be eating a lot of salt. And so in addition to, you know, things like sugar and high glycemic carbs, it made us realize that salt might be another mechanism to increase fructose production. And so what we did is we gave animals salt and and we did it over uh, several months. And we found that when we gave them salt, that over time, initially, it took a long time, actually, it took like four or five months. So it's a slower process than with sugar. But eventually, they became extremely fat and diabetic and the whole bit. And they developed all the, the switch was turned on in every way. And then when we looked inside them, we found that they were making a lot of fructose. And when we blocked the fructose, we could block the development of obesity. Um, and so we realized that um, that high salt diets are a, a, a potential way to trigger uh, this o- uh, obesity and the switch and uh, the fat switch and, and cause obesity. We, would, we also went on and, and discovered that uh, when the salt concentrations go up in the blood, that it activates a hormone called vasopressin. And uh, vasopressin is a hormone that helps conserve water. And we said, well, okay, it conserves water by re- concentrating the urine, uh, decreases water vapor loss through the lung, uh, we believe. And, and so it's, it's, it's thought to be a general uh, a hormone that should protect animals from dehydration. And we thought, well, what if it also stimulated fat production as another means to protect the animal from dehydration? Because fat will produce water when you break it down. And so uh, we started thinking about that, and uh, we noticed that, that there was a literature pointing out that people who are overweight or obese have high vasopressin levels in their blood. And so uh, we went on and studied it, and we were able to show that vasopressin does have a role in driving uh, how sugar causes obesity, and it's uh, working through a particular receptor <clears throat> called the vasopressin 1B receptor that people really hadn't didn't know what that receptor was doing. And now we know there actually is a fat hormone. Vasopressin is a fat hormone. It's how sugar uh, stimulates fat production. And it's working through and along with this biochemical pathway that we've uh, described. So, and then that, of course, gave the idea that we might be able to treat obesity with by giving people water. And there's, you know, there's a kind of a burgeoning literature that drinking water is healthy and that it can actually um, have a benefit on weight. And when we studied it in our animals, we could largely block the ability of obesity and, just by increasing water intake in, in our animals fed sugar. So, um, you know, we couldn't completely block it. And, um, but we, we could really help reduce the development of obesity and diabetes by just increasing water intake. And we think that we, you know, in my book, I go into, you know, how much water we should be drinking. And I do want to caution you, you don't want to be drinking huge amounts of water because you can get water intoxicated, especially if you're doing heavy exercise like marathon running or uh, following surgery, for example, it's been shown that you can get water intoxicated. 
So um, please read my book before <laughs> hydrating yourself um, too much because I, you know, but if you want to, uh, you know, six to eight glasses of water a day is, is a very good uh, starting plan if you're trying to lose weight and it's very healthy. That's, that's a great practical tip and really fascinating physiology. It's such a simple intervention. There was a study that you cited from Germany in the book with, that showed that just by putting water fountains in schools, they could get students to each drink one glass of water more per day. And that it led to a 30% reduction in yeah. the risk of children becoming overweight. I mean, this is so simple. And we know the mechanism now. I'm excited for everyone to have that one in their back pocket. Thanks. Um, what about thinking about a healthy level of salt intake per day? I guess the question is, does it really matter how much salt you're taking in if you are hydrating appropriately to keep the concentration at the appropriate level? Does it matter about how much, like you said, with marathon training, how much training you're doing? It's sort of hard to fine tune without the biofeedback that we don't really have yet. I, I mean, I, I think it'll be great when we have an osmolarity monitor on us, but but how can we like think about salt intake, especially in the context of, of fitness and training? Well, one of, one of the things that comes out of this is that it's it's really the balance of salt and water that one eats that governs your salt concentration in your blood and it also how much you're exercising and, and whether you're in conditions where you're losing water. But we did an experiment that I think uh, was really pretty cool experiment. This was done by my collaborator, Mehmet Canby uh, in Turkey. And what he decided to do uh, with us was to give salty soup to volunteers. And one of the great things about soup is you can you can mask how much salt is in there because of the flavor of the soup. So he made a fairly salty soup that would raise the salt concentration just a couple, just a little bit um, in the blood, but it was enough to raise the salt concentration in the blood. And when he gives this, uh, you know, the vasopressin went up in the blood, which we know is driving obesity. So it's showing that the switch is being activated. And also the blood pressure shot up as the immediate response associated with um, activating the switch. So then uh, uh, he randomized it. So one group got the salt, salty soup with no water. And another group got, actually we had three groups. We had different amounts of water. And what we found is that as we increased the water with the soup, we could block the vasopressin response and we could block the rise in blood pressure. So this, the, the way salt raises blood pressure, at least acutely, is not from eating so much salt, it's by raising the salt concentration in the blood. And so if you can block that by drinking water at the same time, you can you can actually neutralize the effect of the salt. So in other words, if you go into a bar and you drink water before you eat that salted pretzel, you're gonna be better off. But as soon as you uh, eat enough pretzels that you're thirsty, you've triggered the switch. Amazing, okay, very, very helpful. We are running out of time. I have so many more questions I want to ask you. We may need to have a follow-up conversation because this is just like so amazing. And I think, you know, maybe one thing we could leave listeners with because really the the latter third of the book is the actual plan for how to take everything we know from these dozens of experiments you've done about the survival switch and put it into a plan 
that doesn't activate the survival switch so that we can, you know, basically optimize these pathways to be lean and healthy um, in our modern world. But some of what you talk about there, aside from just foods, is we ultimately need to get our mitochondria functioning better and, you know, keep our mitochondria healthy and active and all of these things. So maybe you could leave people with one tip, maybe around exercise or something else of just how we can really, you know, do a simple behavior or action that keeps our mitochondria on track. Sure. So one of the uh, problems is when the switch is activated a long time, it starts to reduce the number of mitochondria we have. And that is associated with progressive fatigue, aging, uh, dis- you know, and all the things we don't want. And, and then it makes it harder to lose weight. Uh, as we lose the mitochondria, it makes it harder to lose weight. So when you activate the switch and you're young um, and you haven't been overweight so long uh, and the mitochondria still are fairly healthy, you can lose weight very easily. But once you've been overweight a long time and your mitochondria are down, um, you you can't really lose weight very easily without uh, doing a trick, which is, and that trick is to bring back your mitochondria. And the wonderful thing is um, animals do it and we can too. And there, there are several approaches, but the one that's probably the best, most effective approach is exercise, but it's not any exercise. It's a specific type of exercise where you exercise what we call zone two. But what you want to do is uh, you want to exercise just enough that you're, um, you can talk, but it's a little difficult to talk while you're exercising. So, and that actually gets you right into that range, that zone two range. Um, some people are on medication that affects heart rates and things like that. So it turns out that the heart exercising to heart rate is not uh, as effective as doing it the way that I'm telling you. But like walking or cycling or things like that can really make a difference. You have to go a certain amount of time, at least 45 minutes at each time in order to really trigger the uh, the growth of the mitochondria. But it's possible to give yourself back um, some of your youth by uh, rejuvenating your mitochondria. There are other tricks as well, but I'll save that for the those who want to read the book. Yes. Well, <laughs> that is great. I, I think, um, you know, for people not on um, beta blockers or other medications that are going to affect heart rate, um, I think a general rule, would you say, you can look online for zone two heart rate. So basically taking your age and figure out percentage of your max heart rate and then shooting to do that for a fairly long period of time, probably, you know, what, 30 minutes to an hour, would you say? Yes. But this is good news because this is not this is not super intense exercise. This is like like you said, walking, being able to you know maybe fast paced walking. Yes, um, if you're young, um, and so so that's great and very doable. And, I, and that's one of the things I love about your book is that everything in it is actually pretty doable. The diet is not restrictive. The exercise is fairly gentle. Um, the water, you know, drinking water. These are these are things, but there's a molecular basis to all of it, um, and experiments to back every single recommendation up. It's really a tour de force. One of the things that I also love about the book is, and for anyone who likes like spy or Sherlock Sherlock Holmes type books, it is truly showing how science is the unfolding of this mystery of this detective case, and every experiment follows up 
prior experiments to just show one more layer of the onion. I honestly think this book is going to make a lot of people want to get PhDs because it shows how fun it can be the multi-decade journey of unfolding research to get to really actionable insights. And um, the way you present it is astounding and beautiful and just really inspired me. It it made me want to go back to the lab. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank Thank you you. for this book. Thank you for what you're bringing into the world. Um, I think the public health implications of this type of knowledge are monumental in the like multi-trillions of dollars worth of um, impact because obviously metabolic disease is underpinning so much of our, our morbidity and mortality and costs in this country. So thank you for your work. Thank you for sharing it with us. And um, everyone, go get uh, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. And where can people find you? DrRichardJohnson.com uh, is my website. We're also NatureWantsUsToBeFat.com. So the same as the title of the book. Thank you. You bet. 